you know, the only thing I can say is that we've known for a really long time that when you build for scale, safety is what is sacrificed in that process. And, and so now they have to build for safety and they're going to do everything they can to avoid looking at the design of their products and saying, oh, maybe the openness of our advertising system is a problem, or oh, maybe the way that people take advantage of how easy it is to create accounts, that's a problem, or oh, maybe if we take a look at how people buy and sell accounts and, and grow them or sell clicks, likes, and shares, maybe we'll make it harder to do that. But instead, it's really just about, you know, keeping the reputation of the product as untarnished as possible. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 28th, 2021. It's another episode of Arbiters of Truth, Lawfare's miniseries on disinformation and misinformation. This week, Kate Klonick and I spoke with Joan Donovan, the research director at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Her work focuses on networked social movements, disinformation, and media manipulation. So she's the perfect person to help us untangle the continued fallout, not only from the January 6th Capitol riot, but from the last four years more broadly. We talked about Joan's route from researching Occupy Wall Street to studying far-right disinformation, the importance of understanding networks of communication and coordination in studying social media, and the responses of big social platforms to the violence in the Capitol. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 28th. Joan Donovan on disinformation and social movements. So, Joan, thank you so much for joining us today. And before we get into kind of your current work, I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about yourself and how you got here. Your PhD was about technologies of social change, and the, specifically, you focused on the Occupy movements. Can you tell us a little bit how you first got interested in that and then, you know, how your work has evolved in the last couple of years? Yeah, so uh, God, it was like nearly a decade ago. I was interested in the internet. I've always been interested in technology. I've been a tinkerer since I was a young, younger person. I used to take apart VCRs and I learned how to fix VHS tapes as a as a kind of side job when I was in high school. And so, yeah, so I've always kind of been interested in technology and what it can do and what capacities it brings to different people and. Uh, when I was searching for dissertation topic, it was right at the beginning of the Occupy movement. And uh, I just thought, what a weird thing. You people are living outside. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so I just thought, oh, this would be a kind of a fun way to get to try out ethnography and to try out this other method. And so I went, I went to uh, Best Buy and I bought a little camera and a little microphone and I just started recording interviews like in at Occupy LA and and then uh you know friends at the time with Lana Schwartz and and Kevin Driscoll who were just kind of like there's something here this is weird and they really encouraged me to to pursue it as a as a research topic but like looking and searching it and think things are not research so I actually had to develop a methodology, pick a piece of the movement that I wanted to focus on. And at that time, there was a really big problem facing network social movements in and of themselves, which is 
online, they look like everybody knows everybody and they're all using the same memes and Facebook and Twitter and everything looks like it's somehow uh, unified, but that's really a consequence of the design of the technology where you can copy the images easily and you can share the links easily. And so what I tried to look at in my dissertation was how does a movement get organized? And really, and really the way in which network social movements got organized uh, was by building infrastructure, building communication infrastructure. And so I've always been attuned to thinking about communication as the structure of society itself. And I've just kind of brought that lens to everything I've researched, uh, including beyond the Occupy movement, looking at white supremacist use of DNA ancestry tests to make boundaries within their groups online and and uh, later to look at this phenomenon of media manipulation and disinformation as a kind of information problem that involves infrastructure and uh, networked movements. So I saw that about the DNA ancestry in the white supremacy groups, and I was a little bit darkly fascinated. How exactly would they use that technology? Did you have to show your ancestry or the proof of your ancestry to be in some of these groups? Like, how did that particularly work out exactly? Yeah. So if you look at the the way the net, the, the white supremacist version of the net exists, is that they have a few different websites where they talk rather openly about essentially like what they imagine the future can be like. And one one of the ways in which they imagine the future is is a lot of nostalgia for a past. And so talking about, you know, genetics was just an extension of thinking about genealogies or more pen and paper kind of hi- histories of families. And so my collaborators, the PIs on the project were Chris Kelty at UCLA and Aaron Panofsky at UCLA. And so we looked at the message board Stormfront, which has been around since the 90s, which is avowedly white supremacist. And on it, it, going back to 2004, people were talking about, hey, there's this new thing. It's called genetic testing. They can tell you, you know, essentially what your haplotype is, which can give you Uh, some background uh, about the region your family may have come from. And so as genetic ancestry tests got cheaper and became much more commercialized, and Landra Nelson writes about them as as recreational genetics, and Ruha Benjamin as well has written about this phenomenon as it pertains to different ethnicities and races trying to use genetics to make sense of themselves. We thought, okay, well, how do then white people who are invested in being white think about genetics in this moment. And we had, you know, this study was conducted in 2015. So we had, you know, 10 years of data from this message board that essentially said, you know, as the as the tests got cheaper, more people started taking them. But the results were often very confounding, which is that they would find that the tests really sell diversity. This is the marketing pitch as everybody's from somewhere. And and if you take one of these tests, maybe it's Africa. But that's not the kind of result they were seeking. And so uh, we look at the responses to people's test results and how they try to make sense of them in this context where people are really trying to hold on to whiteness 
and not burnish it as an identity. And so we, we look at the strategies and the, and the kind of mental gymnastics that they have to play in order to retain their whiteness. The reaction to that, that paper we finished, you know, sort of like midnight before the due date of the American Sociological Association's conference. And we put it up online as a preprint, as you do. And that same weekend was the Unite the Right rally. And so we were sort of the only academics situated at that time besides, you know, people that have been doing this a lot longer than us, like Jesse Daniels, to be able to talk about, well, what was the alt-right and how were they trying to make sense of themselves and what is contemporary white supremacy and how is it organized? And so that work just happened to be ready at a moment when society was sort of ready to hear that kind of knowledge. So you mentioned uh, mental gymnastics, which I think is a, a good lead into to the next question I wanted to ask, which is, when do you feel like your work started focusing on misinformation and disinformation? Was that part of it all along, or did it come to play a bigger role as time went on? No, I was, you know, back when I was looking at Occupy and 15M and other social movements, I was always attuned to the counter narratives about movements, right? There's one story that a movement tells itself about itself. And then there's the story the media tells about a movement. And and then, of course, there's the story that academics tell from the perspective of their theory. And so one of the things that was always very puzzling to me about, for instance, like the Occupy movement is people were like, oh, the movement failed. They didn't get rid of taxes or they did, you know, they were successful because Barack Obama was reelected. And I'm just like, none of that makes sense if you were part of that moment and part of that movement. And that the Occupy movement was actually very local in a sense that when you start to look at what people were doing in their cities in order to manifest, I guess, this Occupy movement was they were getting together in public and talking about problems that they thought they could make a difference in, and then working with their local governments or through protest, making those demands happen and changing local laws uh, in very different ways. And so when you look from the perspective of a movement about what counts as a win and what they say about themselves, you become very like attuned to misinformation because it's everywhere. And I think, you know, at this stage in my career, I realize that misinformation is a function of communication. It's always going to be there. But when I started to really focus in on lies, like disinformation, the political or financial gain that could happen if you could grow a lie or if you could scale a lie to uh, the size of society, that's when I started to focus much more on this different phenomenon of these uh, what I call adversarial movements, which are groups of people that are doing disinformation campaigns or media manipulation campaigns for a very specific to reach a very specific goal. 
So I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I wanted to specifically talk about this wonderful article that focused on your work in the Washington Post that came out a few weeks ago. And they had this quote from you about how disinformation can be a very lucrative business, especially if you're good at it. And so, you know, you're talking about people who you just were talking about that. I'm kind of curious, who are the people that are making money off of disinformation? And what does it really look like to be good at it versus bad at it? (laughs) Well, bad at it is uh, easier to answer in the sense that if you just go on, you know, one of these anonymous message boards like 4chan, it's they just try to make everything happen. Right. So there's a lot of wasted energy in trying to to game journalists and get them to say the wrong things. And um, and they don't hide their tracks very well. Uh, There's ways in which people practice making disinformation happen but they don't have either the the money to pay platforms to circulate content to new audiences, which is like what we saw a lot in 2016, or they don't have the actual influence networks. And someone that has been able to turn disinformation operations into a career is someone like Steve Bannon. And if you look through the through line of the last, at least since 2015, 2014, if you look through the through line of media history and the way in which Bannon has positioned Breitbart to kind of be the the megaphone for this alt-right movement, harnessing the anger and, and loneliness of white men and then uh, giving it a voice, giving it a name, giving it tactics, uh, shaping it in order to make it seem as if they made Trump happen, like giving a movement a win in the media is really important. And so Breitbart was a really great venue for that. But if you look at 2020, three of the most like large and impactful disinformation campaigns came out of Bannon's set. Uh, So Bannon was behind the COVID is a bioweapon and he was working with an exiled Chinese billionaire who had paid Bannon $100 million to set up this rule of law foundation. And they flew a Hong Kong postdoc to the United States to act as a whistleblower, saying she had firsthand knowledge that China had developed COVID in a lab. The second one that was kind of botched, but nonetheless, did a, they attempted it multiple times, was the Biden laptop scandal. Bannon and Giuliani were were prime movers in that in that disinformation campaign, which is part of the reason why platform companies took the actions that they did, because they saw very clearly it, it was a hack and leak operation. And then lastly, the the big lie, the stop the steal, you know, one of the things that you have to do to make disinformation campaigns effective is create a repetitive content. So people have to hear the same thing every day. So he was going live on YouTube twice a day, most days, just kind of landing this steady storyline that Giuliani's trying, Powell's trying, they're all trying to make the legal system work and it won't. And then uh, Bannon brings in Peter Navarro, who's an advisor to the president. And um, Navarro writes this report called the Immaculate Deception that kind of lays out all of the different court cases and where all the election fraud must have been happening. So Bannon's got Navarro on. So there's like the way in which he does disinformation is a it's a playbook. There's a pattern. 
And so repetition is uh, the same story plus a little bit more every day, just like your garden variety soap opera does. Then there's redundancy, the same story every day on every platform. So you see it in a bunch of different places. You start to feel like, well, maybe there's something here. Then he starts to really optimize what he's doing for algorithmic reinforcement using the same hashtags, bringing in new hashtags to to get people excited about new information, this whole release the Kraken ordeal around Stop the Steal or many of the other ones around um, election fraud or, or, you know, what was happening individually in every state, the call to get Georgia to stop their election, their, their runoff election. All of this stuff is playing out in a very war gamey Bannon way where he's, he's got this one tactic that he often uses, which is, he says, you know, very plainly that he aims to flood the zone with shit. And when you do that, it becomes really hard for anyone else to have anything meaningful to say. So this is fascinating. And something I just kind of want to touch on for a second as a follow-up is, like, do you have to be Steve Bannon or have Steve Bannon's resources to do something like this? Like, all of this sounds like he's particularly good at it, but none of it sounds particularly expensive either. It's not expensive, but where it pays off and where it scales is really your capacity to enroll sort of like a multi-level marketing campaign, but multi-level influencers, right? If you can get buy-in from other content creators, Instagrammers, these uh, networks of people that often spread this speculative conspiracist content like the QAnon factions, you really have to be a network maker if you want it to scale. The cheap and fast version of disinformation is tricking a journalist to say the wrong thing. And we've seen that happen time and time again, where a journalist gets an angle on a story. And they all think that, like, you know, a lot of journalists that get an angle on white supremacists think, oh, no one else is telling this story. And there's a reason why no one else is, like, interviewing Martin Selner from Generation Identity about his thoughts on the Capitol. It's because... He's a well-known white supremacist, and he's going to use your outlet to promote his own, you know, brand of white supremacy. And so this was an article that came out just a couple days ago in the New York Times that I'm, I'm kind of dancing around. But it was really unfortunate to see that white nationalists and white supremacists were being profiled as if their opinions matter on what, you know, the capital insurrection meant and how they could have done it better. And so when we look at disinformation campaigns and how they scale, the more money and the more influence, the more effective they are at dragging it out over the long term. Because otherwise you have to have a very slow burn in order to grow the digital wildfire. And it, and it can take quite a long time to find something that sticks rather than if you have someone like Trump that's willing to to share those hashtags or to share in those those storylines then you can get instantaneous reaction from the mainstream press. Let's talk more about January 6th, the the riot at the Capitol and the the fallout. In the wake of the violence, we've seen the big platforms, most notably Facebook and Twitter, react very aggressively by 
uh, suspending Trump's accounts, cracking down on the spread of other conspiracy theories like QAnon. There has been a, a lot of discussion about whether or not that was the right move, whether it was too aggressive, whether it wasn't aggressive enough. What's your take on how the platforms have handled this? Yeah. Back in 2018, I was working with Becca Lewis on the Alternative Influence Network report, and we were making really minor interventions into the field saying, hey, now that you know that there's a pocket of neo-Nazis that are collaborating and, you know, kind of moving their influence around by working with well-known content creators, these well-known content creators are incentivized to bring white supremacists onto their YouTube shows because it gets views and it's controversial and we made some like really like baby steps kind of suggestions and recommendations in that report this is back when i was at data and society which is essentially hey do you think if something's going viral and people are starting to make money off of it and you've you know given them all these privileges of live stream and super chats you know maybe you want to take a little look look in and see if they're you know what they're up to right <laughs> like that wouldn't have been that hard uh but you know at that time people were like are you trying to censor the internet you're a demon and i was just like i don't get it like if someone's making money off of hate harassment incitement disinformation defamation hoaxes scams grifts like let's just make it stop <laughs> <laughs> like we would do that if someone was running a, you know, a, a scam over the telephone or, you know, like even like, you know, I'm thinking about those late night infomercials. If the product didn't work, you know, like they didn't get to keep making infomercials. But as I was thinking about it, you know, over the last few weeks, you know, the only thing I can say is that we've known for a really long time that when you build for scale safety is what is sacrificed in that process. And, and so now they have to build for safety and they're going to do everything they can to avoid looking at the design of their products and saying, oh, maybe the openness of our advertising system is a problem or, oh, maybe the way that people take advantage of how easy it is to create accounts, that's a problem. Or, oh, maybe if we take a look at how people buy and sell accounts and, and grow them or sell clicks, likes, and shares. Maybe we'll make it harder to do that. But instead, it's really just about, you know, keeping the reputation of the product as untarnished as possible. But of course, after the what happened at the Capitol, it's those bets are off because the performance is, you know, largely for journalists and regulators and largely for regulators to be able to say, you know, okay, policymakers, like, I know people are making a big deal about our platform, but look over here at this other problem. <laughs> Isn't this other thing way worse? Like, why don't you go make policy about that? And so at this stage, you know, I think we've moved beyond a technological fix and need to need to really look at antitrust options and look at the tech stack in general and make some determinations about what certain businesses are and aren't allowed to do. I mean, Facebook is growing at such a rate that if Facebook moves into banking before we can get a handle on the problems it's caused in our information economy, then we're going to be trying to fix, you know, last decade's problem as Facebook is morphing into 
next decade destruction. We're talking about Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Everyone's kind of talking what I mean, I refer to them as the big three content platforms because people usually refer to the big five as Amazon and Google and Facebook, uh, Microsoft and Apple. But one of the things that we saw coming out of January 6th was, of course, deplatforming and deplatforming happening down the Internet stack away from those just those three content platforms, but into Amazon Web Services. And of course, we've seen Cloudflare before. We've seen Amazon Web Services before, too. But what are you thinking about how these previously fairly content neutral players weighing in on disinformation or weaponized media manipulation at this point? Yeah, I mean, the the Amazon Web Services, you know, if we go back and we look at the precursors to this mass deplatforming and look at what happened during Charlottesville, there was a lot of hand-wringing about domain companies not wanting to provide services to neo-Nazi message boards and there was some back and forth about Cloudflare and where their security services should and shouldn't be utilized, like, uh, you know, security as a service. And then there was a little bit of talk, but not too much talk about content hosting, because a lot of these neo-Nazi places decided that the only way they were going to be able to maintain their content hosting was to go to the Philippines and and really just stay off of U.S. businesses, uh, which is why Parler is really unique and very different because here you have a platform that needs the stability of Amazon AWS. It can't be going on and off intermittently. People aren't in love with it that much that they're going to come back if it goes down for a couple of hours or a couple of days. People want it to function much more like a stable service like Facebook. And so Amazon web services by virtue of taking away that their service really didn't leave parlor with many options at all for being able to provide service for the mm-hmm. amount of traffic that they were anticipating. And so, yeah, so we're in this very strange place where because of the policy, which will never be mentioned, <laughs> you know, there's a lack of liability um, for platform companies, which in some respects has made it so that almost every technology company sees themselves as a platform company, right? Because they traffic in information, the way that that policy is written makes it seem like, well, if you traffic in information, then everything is is open to interpretation but i think the next order of business for any policymakers would be to start to think about well how do we carve out and understand and define what types of web businesses are or what types of technology companies are appropriate in what part of the tech stack and if you own one part of this what might present a conflict of interest where you shouldn't be allowed to own other parts of this. So a good example of that is to say, we've always been resistant for having content service companies or content platforms also own hardware. And that has a lot to do with being able to uh, stifle any kind of innovation, right? You try to, you could make your own little walled garden in that, in that sense. And, uh, you know, thinking back to Microsoft and the browser wars, that kind of goes against the design of, of, the web and internet as a technology where it's 
the vision was very much decentralized, but also bricolage, like we're in modular. It was supposed to be that different things could plug in and work on different systems and, and that you were supposed to strive towards interoperability. And so I think that we're going to, we have a long way to go in terms of figuring out those basic pieces of the puzzle. But unfortunately, just like in what we're finding in AI research is that a dearth of the money and therefore power related to how we conceptualize the problem comes from these companies themselves. And so at the same time that we want to rein in and limit these companies' ability to be every service for everyone, we also have to reckon with a field of research that is is thoroughly, I don't want to use the word corrupted because that's too strong of a term, but there's suspicions everywhere and we need to investigate and understand why we're getting certain kinds of policy recommendations out of different research labs, university, you know, nonprofit, for-profit. And we have to investigate those connections and, and look at where the, the money and the funding is coming from because research, this I can say without a doubt, is research in this field has become so politicized that I'm not sure that everybody's paying attention to that connection between the soft money the politicization of the research, and then the policy we end up getting. I want to go back to Kate's question about the role of different platforms in the in the stack here, because I, I think it gets to something really interesting, which is who's making these decisions in the first place. And I, you know, every time we talk about the stack, I always think about Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare's blog post after Cloudflare pulled service from the Daily Stormer following Charlottesville, where he sort of wrote, you know, I made this decision that this website shouldn't be online. Nobody should have that kind of power. And then suggested that Cloudflare put together, you know, some kind of consortium of companies where they could develop standards, which as far as I know, has not yet borne born fruit. And so I think it it leads to a really interesting question. You know, how should these deplatforming decisions be made and by whom? Obviously, Kate has done a lot of scholarship on Facebook's oversight board project. Critics, on the other hand, are, would argue that, you know, that's just Facebook kind of doing a PR initiative. And at the end of the day, it's it's still Facebook deciding who's on the web and who's off the web. Is it how how do you balance those? concerns about the sort of philosopher kings of the internet making these decisions versus the necessity, in your view, of taking down content that's genuinely dangerous? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think like one of the things that I've really tried to show in our research is everywhere along the way where certain decisions could and should have been made, the organizational culture of the way the platform conceptualizes the problem gets in the way. So yeah, the idea that, you know, one man should not be making these decisions alone, right? But then also not putting in place the structures by which they would be checked on that kind of power to begin with, right, is is silly. I have made this joke a lot, but, you know, Dorsey and Zuckerberg, as a result of the 2020 election became the highest paid content moderators in history in the sense that like they were the ones that had to make these calls. 
they've known for years <laughs> that this was coming, right? Like the, you don't, you don't need a crystal ball. Although I will charge you for <laughs> uh, telling you the future if, if, if you'll let me, but like everybody knew that everybody knew that Trump was going to like, kind of be the, the, the apex of the problem on, on these platforms when it came to the, the final takedown. But, you know, it makes me think a lot about computer science as a discipline and, and the lore around Silicon Valley, where it's, you have these people who design in teams, and then by virtue of them either being at the head uh, or making the most money or positioned as the CEO, they take all of the credit for all the good things that happen. And then when the bad things happen, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I shouldn't have this kind of power. And it's like, what? And so there is this kind of great man ethos uh, and charisma that comes with both the conceptualization of what the problem is that fails to see it as a, a problem of the design of the, the systems themselves. And at the same time, as, as Kate has argued in her piece on the, the reluctant governance structure here, is that... um you know, that they don't want to be in charge, but they want to make the money to be in charge. And so you can't have all of that. But the Supreme Court structure is actually the most interesting one to me. So when the fake news problem hit, they were like, I know, we'll offload our problem onto fact checkers. And now these fact checking organizations are being sued by the very people that they're fact checking. <laughs> and now they're like, and now we'll offload the really hard questions or some of the softball ones about content onto Ivy League universities, <laughs> um, you know, where, you know, these these very well-respected people couldn't turn away from what was reported, I think, in the New York Times as a, as a $200,000 paycheck. And if I made that at my full-time job, <laughs> you know, it probably wouldn't be as alluring to take it at my part-time job. But yeah, there's a there that too is a very serious issue when we talk about whose responsibility is it, because it, it's an organizational problem that requires an organizational fix. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that this is underappreciated, that they've built these bureaucracies and that these bureaucracies are unchecked and that they're not asking some of these really hard questions about how the entire system is built and instead going for these, you know, for years with ad hoc decisions and policy changes that were behind the scenes and non-transparent. And now increasingly they are coming up with solutions like fact-checking boards or as if that was, you know, some type of scalable or sensical solution. So one of the things I wanted to ask about was putting out more nets to catch fish. Uh, and so what I mean by that is, basically the idea of using automated technology and at higher scale to take down things like hashtag QAnon or uh, stop the steal language. And of course, that's going to lead to uh, a lot of false positives. People who are trying to use those terms to criticize with benign intention and end up getting censored. And so for every 100 removed Nazi quotes, you're maybe only going to take down one actual neo-Nazi what I kind of just want to ask you is whether you think that that amount of potential censorship is worth it at the end of the day. And I very much think that it might be, right? If we are fomenting in these in these spaces, really bad actors, um, maybe we're willing to curb our freedom of expression ever so slightly in order to catch really bad guys. 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about, and this gets back to the beginning of our conversation here, but if you think about the role of social media as a problem of social coordination rather than one of information flows, then you start to see things like hashtags as more mechanistic than they are speech in the sense that they help people organize information and resources and as well as crowds. Uh, And we've known that since the days of, uh, you know, many social movements had a first mover advantage in the sense that social movements are always willing to jump in and use a technology first and see if it works for them and, and then deploy it more broadly if it does. But that kind of logic of what was good for social justice must be good for social media uh, hit a limit case with someone like Bannon figuring out how to utilize Trump as a, a zany, charismatic, like weirdo before he was president uh, that was willing to say a lot of crazy things in public and didn't really care what people said back to him. And so, you know, if you think about those social media as having this connective action rather than collective action problem, which Lance Bennett writes about years ago. Then you start to understand disinformation actually as a feature of the system and that that is what needs to be guarded against. When you start to look at who the the creators of disinformation are and you look at those patterns, it's actually very small. But because they're seeing the problem much later in the media manipulation life cycle when it has already been seeded across the net and is starting to gain traction and people are starting to to circulate it, it just becomes much and much worse. And so you need to have actually early intervention around particular kinds of disinformation campaigns. Because if you don't, then they do sort of what QAnon did, which was a slow boil over time. QAnon cooked and cooked and cooked until it was, you know, kind of ready to explode. And if they had taken action on it when it was just an anti-Semitic movement, they wouldn't have seen the kind of effects that we saw when it was utilized to to spread stop, stop the steal propaganda. And I, you know, Reddit didn't have that same problem because Reddit doesn't work at that scale and doesn't seem to at least place growth at any cost above the product's needs, which is why I feel like, you know, in some respects, when it comes to deploying AI and whatnot, you know, I still run a very small team at Shorenstein. We've we've got like seven full-time people. Like if we can do it with seven people and be able to understand, you know, 80% of the disinformation flowing on these platforms and why it's there, then I feel like if we had 70, <laughs> we could probably do an even better job, right? And uh, I say that just to say that within the company, it's really about how they see the problem and how they see the design of their product as something that can I- enable disinformation. And so, but you don't get to the point of having to take down 70,000 QAnon accounts if you've been paying attention to them for the last two years. So to to change topics a bit, you had a a really interesting article in Foreign Policy recently with Gabrielle Lim about the ripple effects of many of these takedowns, sort of pointing out that there's actually a, a real benefit to collecting data and evidence from some of these posts that may be violent or disturbing, even though there's also a benefit to platforms removing those posts. Uh, right now, I think we we have a great example 
of this and how we see law enforcement and independent researchers using information from, you know, Parler, Facebook, Twitter to identify participants in the Capitol riot and sort of figure out exactly what happened. So in your view, how how do we balance these competing incentives of taking down potentially dangerous information with also holding on to that valuable archive? Yeah, I think one of the provocations that came out of the mass takedowns was another call for transparency. We've been asking these companies to provide us, not us, but society-wide data that can help us understand the who, what, when, where of disinformation so that we can guard against it, so that we can build other systems that can protect, let's say, like our open science databases, for instance, have been under attack. But it's all for the performance of science on social media to say, oh, I published a scientific paper on how COVID is a bioweapon. Check it out. Right. Um, and so like the, what happens on social media often affects all kinds of other spaces and places. And so when we were thinking about what a human rights locker might look like, we were really trying to think through other places in which we've seen archives work, like the Syrian archive, um, and then think about this problem as it relates to the United States, when we know that a lot of the stuff that's getting taken down, of course, is getting taken down because it was used to foment an insurrection. And if those networks stay online, it's not just, you don't just remove an account, you remove a node, right? If you think about Trump as a node, uh, or as Trump was actually a hub, then it's a different story that you're telling about deplatforming, because you're not just removing a person, you're removing that person's capacity to broadcast to, you know, multiples. And so when I think about like what we need then is we do need a place in which uh, that kind of evidence can be preserved and sorted through. I think one of the most dangerous after effects of this moment is that the tactic of doxing has become so generalized that I'm seeing, you know, grandparents do it. They're like, oh, you know, I was using reverse image search and I found this and I found that. And I think it's Todd, my grocery man that was at the Capitol. And it's like, what? You think it's him? Like he kind of looked like that guy and you're going to you're going to put him on the Internet forever. Right. You know, and I, I joke about it, but it's also like when you think about it, these people that are that are participating in these mass doxing campaigns that are looking through the digital detritus that's left up online and serving up tips to the FBI, none of those people have thought about their own personal security. And they're doing it all in public. And if there's one thing I've learned about dealing with extremists over the last several years is they're relentless and they're mean and they're not going to stop. And so a lot of people, though, don't don't think about the consequences it might have on them later on when they've positively, truly identified some extremist that gets a slap on the wrist uh, for showing up at the Capitol, but now has taken as their aim, you know, the 22-year-old kid who was like just on Twitter that day with nothing to do but was being told, here's how you positively ID someone. And so I think there's a lot of like learning that needs to happen. And I think with a human rights locker approach, at least we don't 
destroy everything. Like there's a protocol, there would be a protocol in place. And then, and then also the people that would have access to that to look through it would need to have a reason to be able to access it and look through it. And just like, you know, you would give somebody a library card to, to have them have access to the library. But there's a lot of issues with the way that we've been doing things for the last couple of years that now are starting to put people in danger in ways that they don't think about. Like, and they're not, they shouldn't have to think about it, to be honest with you. Uh, it should be the FBI's job to catch the baddies, but um, <laughs> we've known for a very long time that they're not going to do that when it comes to white supremacists. So we got to protect our own, you know, when it comes to that. And so I appreciate the impulse to do it. Uh, I really do. But also the practice of it then has to be anonymous, which is usually, which is what we used to do or back in the day, you know, when people would name check neo-Nazis, that they would do it in a way that didn't tie themselves directly to that identification. Yeah. So, but you, you talk about something really interesting here that I kind of want to loop back into what we were talking about earlier. And when I was kind of describing these, these very large nets, you know, increasing the number of nets is like, you're going to get more dolphins. This is a different type of mechanism that you're describing, but I think it's a, I think that it's a really good one, which is that these, that these solutions that we're coming up with to a reverse image search or dox anyone or kind of shame people or hunt down people as vigilantes. These are blunt tools that are don't have proportionality in their punishment necessarily. It's great if you can get a neo-Nazi, but if you ruin somebody's life who happens to look a lot like a neo-Nazi, you know, a lot can happen on the internet before that becomes clear. You know, you've described the idea that there needs to be a public education process. What do you think kind of the role of the media? And we have we've talked about tech companies. We talked about regulators. Do you think that the media has a role in in kind of making people more self-aware of this new world we're living in and the way that we need to kind of use or not use these mob tactics in order to to find people and bring them to justice? Yeah, I mean, it's really the question of our time, but the more elite the media tends to be, the harder they are to educate. And uh, so when we were doing work around, you know, how to talk about the alt-right, which now everybody knows are neo-Nazi group, but before it would be like, and there are these gentlemen who are very smart and look cool, call themselves the alt-right, the alternative to conservatives. And you're like, no, no, they're white supremacists. Like, don't do this. And we go through this over and over and over again. There were profiles of the Proud Boys that were like, you know, how could they be white supremacists? They've got Latinos and, you know, and it just doesn't, it doesn't track once you start looking at what their practices are and, and who their targets are. And so as I've come to think about media, especially around this moment in particular, where people need to realize that if they are participating in a mass identification campaign that they are also putting themselves at risk if they're doing it with their personal accounts. I see the opposite happening on mainstream media, CNN, The New Yorker, that are interviewing these researchers that are coordinating these public campaigns and are teaching people how to use these technologies in this way. And But there's like one weird twist, and it's really hard to wrap my head around, which is these are anti-fascist tactics. And so when you carry this out in a local level, it really isn't about like 
calling the cops on people. It's about identifying people in your community that are a danger and then making sure everybody else in your community knows that they're a danger. And that's like, I don't want people to pin their false hope on this idea that the FBI is going to get us justice because that's not going to happen here. And so the kind of tactics, like if people were thinking about this strategically would be to say, okay, now that I know that this, you know, half dozen people went on a caravan to the Capitol to overthrow the government. I'm going to make sure that I know where they are in our town and I'm going to make sure I don't shop at their businesses or or use their products or like, you know, that's normally how this plays out. Or like, you know, when it came to like punks versus skinheads, you know, make sure their band doesn't play at our local club. But it, yeah, I think that there's built into this is a lot of false idealism around the capacity for the state to to take action and i think that i i actually see it at all levels of governments where people are going to put a lot of effort into thinking that trump might be impeached there's going to be a lot of uh hand-wringing about you know some of these people are going to get off for larping in nancy pelosi's chair or whatever you know and uh but unfortunately like if we learned anything from those seeking justice in the Black Lives Matter movement, it's that the government and the court system is not going to produce the same kind of justice uh, that you would hope for. And so I just, I'm hoping that people can now turn their attention to mutual aid and, and looking more deeply at like how we end up in a situation where a broad swath of the population thinks the election was, you know, defrauded and that Trump should have won because that is going to be the lasting outcome of this moment is that a, a huge disinformation campaign convinced millions of people that our voting system is is totally fucked up. Really glad that you could join us today, Joan. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was absolutely fascinating. And I always learn so much talking to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.